Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. And for those who have children, that we'd like them in children's church, age four through grade six. You can be dismissed at this time. For the rest of you, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you would. Drummond's Bar began construction on an expansion of their building to increase their business. In response, the local Baptist church started a campaign with petitions and prayers to block the bar from expanding. Work progressed right up until the week before the grand opening, when lightning struck the bar and it burned to the ground. After it was burned to the ground by the lightning strike, the church folk began a rather smug outlook, bragging about their power of prayer until the bar owner sued the church on the grounds of, that the church was, quote, ultimately responsible for the demise of his building, either through direct or indirect actions or means. In reply to that, the church vehemently denied all responsibility or any connection to the building's demise. The judge read through the plaintiff's complaint and the defendant's reply, and at the opening hearing he commented, I don't know how I'm going to decide this, but it appears from the paperwork that we have a bar owner who believes in the power of prayer and an entire church congregation that now does not. <laughs> the headline read, Holy Healing. Sophia Rattan sued the Upper Room Tabernacle Church for $4 million after, failing, or after falling rather, and breaking her arm during a Pentecostal service. Rattan's lawyer, Andrew Sybin, alleges that the congregants in the church often, quote, quake and tremble during services, when the Spirit moves them, end quote, and the church should have provided safety devices that would catch the following worshipers and have prevented Riatin from falling to the floor when the minister pushed her while trying to bless her. Riatin settled her case with the church's insurance company for $80,000. Other than declaring, quote, God loves me when she was notified of her check, Riatin had no other comment, her lawyer Sabin said, because, quote, God told her not to speak about the case. Headline reads, Churchwoman Sues Over Bad Google Review. Everyone pushes the limits of what the First Amendment is, but in this case, the First Amendment doesn't even apply. Announced just today, an Oregon church is suing one of its former members for $500,000 over a scathing review she left on Google. Her review is colorful, that's for sure, filled with metaphors like creepy, cult, control tactics, etc. Of course, the pastor disagrees. Prisoner Sues Church Over Murder. A Romanian prisoner identified as Pavel M., serving 20 years after being convicted of murder, files a lawsuit against the Romanian Orthodox Church as God's representative in Romania for failing to keep him from the devil, essentially stating that his baptism had been a binding contract. The suit was dismissed because the defendant was neither an individual nor a company and was not subject to civil court of the law's jurisdiction. You can find lots of cases like that in bizarre legal cases, particularly concerning church people. And I say that to you because, as you are aware, if you've read ahead a little bit, as we move to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, our third stop in our study through the book of 1 Corinthians, God's plan for a healthy church, in particular today, the corporate testimony of the church as it relates to lawsuits and conflict resolution. And that really is Paul's uh, direct address here to the church. We've arrived at chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, particularly. Holy Spirit's carrying Paul along to deal with church health as it relates to its testimony so he has to deal with errors regarding conflict resolution. I'm sure you've probably realized this a long time ago, but the Bible is a very practical book, and so our time together in the Word today and next Sunday will be spent studying the most exhaustive and clear instruction of Christians and lawsuits in all of the Scriptures. I'd like you to read with me in your open Bible, chapter 6, verse 1. We'll read all the way through verse 11, and then we'll stop right there and come back and begin our work through verse by verse First one, I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You can find that in front of you in the seat or read in your copy. I'll give you some verse cues and we'll stay together. Verse one, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know, verse two, that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law court? Verse three, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the smallest law courts? Verse three. Do you not know that? Uh, do you not know how much more the matters of this life? I'm sorry. Verse four. Now, so that if you have 
law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Verse 5, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? Verse 6, but brother go to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Verse 7, actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Verse 8, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Verse 9, or do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, verse 10, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. Stop right there. Obviously, Paul is dealing with conflict resolution in the church. One of the problems with this church particularly uh, is that they were suing one another. The fact that they were doing this to one another was the reason for Paul's address here. The fact that they were doing it in light of what they'd obviously been taught by Paul during his time as their pastor appears to be the most disturbing thing for Paul. And ultimately their testimony was tarnished and the church was embarrassed as a result of their actions which seemed to be the point of verses 5 and verse 7 where he says in verse 5, I say this to your shame. And then in verse 7 he says, actually then it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. So Paul has some problems, perhaps shocked by what's going on. And he's really he's saying, you know, you think you won in court and you may actually win in court, Paul says, but you lost when you started to do this regardless of the outcome. There were obviously some wronged people inside the church uh, and Paul addresses them. But there were also very wrong motives among those going to court. Uh, with one another, likely even among the wronged. For Paul says in verse 8, he says, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. So they're going to court with those outside the church trying uh, to wrong and defraud those folks as well, because Paul says you do this even to your brethren. So this was just a litigious society, and we'll talk about it in a minute, get some historical context. But So what was happening, so that some of the church were defrauding those outside, some of the church were defrauding those inside, so not just taking them to court to get what was just, but actually uh, getting more and cheating each other and trying to defraud each other. And then verse 6 gives us the target audience for the instruction. Verse 6, look there. It says, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Then verse 7, that you have lawsuits with one another. Now, if you go through the Be the Church class, we're going to talk about the one another's of the church. This is one of the one another's that we don't do. Okay, There's lots of one another's you do participate with. One of the one another's that we don't use listed here. So the target audience is a community of Christian, Christians really having conflict among each other, and they're attempting to resolve it in the courts presided over by non-believers. So not only were they in sin in their attempted conflict resolution, uh, but they were throwing all the ugliness out there in front of the world in the form of terrible testimony. Now, just as a background, as is our habit when we start a new section, normally for those of Jewish background, and perhaps this is why this is such a shock to Paul, but during Paul's time, Jews would not typically go to court in a Gentile court. And really, this dates back to God's instructions to his people in Deuteronomy, uh, where they were giving the process of settling their differences. Uh, the priests had this duty in the temple, and, uh, and if they were you know, part of the diaspora, then they could come to the synagogue, so they're out away from the temple, they could go to the synagogue. So in a process set out originally by God and really adapted to the synagogue, they would typically settle their own problems. They used the law of God to answer their problems and settle their family and social and economic problems. And, and the Jews inside the, the Roman dominion were still given that right to judge their own issues up to the point of execution. And we see that as it relates to Jesus, certainly. And, uh, and yet, undoubtedly, they still carried out some executions, as you think about the woman in John 8 who was about to get stoned uh, without Jesus' intervention, and Stephen's execution, certainly, and Paul being stoned and perhaps... Uh, dying and then being revived, or certainly in a coma. So even at, to the point of execution, the Jews were given uh, this ability, but certainly to everything short of that. And the Romans were very tolerant in that regard, and the Roman law was somewhat advanced and, and very, very tolerant of allowing the Jews to do what they wanted in terms of their own decisions. And you can see that with Pilate dismissing them back. This is the issue of religion. Don't bring it before me. You know, settle this amongst yourselves. This is just a disagreement about teaching. Whatever it is, you have the right to do that. Go do it. But what's interesting about this, too, is that it translates over to Christianity because the Romans and the Greeks saw Christianity as a sect of Judaism. And since they saw it as a form of Judaism, they allowed Christians the same rights they'd always allowed Jews. So they could decide their own issues. So there was really no reason 
uh, for this Corinthian church then to end up in a pagan court. So it was likely then, as we think about just kind of the setting here, that the real reason they were going to a pagan court and not settling the issue inside the church community, which they would know they would be able to do, was that they couldn't get what they wanted inside the church community. And that's the sin issue. Uh, so they'd go to the pagan court and, and let the unredeemed judge, judge between believers. And if they were asking for a large unfair settlement, they would more likely have some sympathy there with unbelievers uh, than they would with believers and more likely to get them. And which is why Paul says if you defraud each other, you cheat each other, this is what you're doing. So Roman law has elements that we can recognize in our own law today. There's a term called stipulatio, and that was used when there was a contract between people and the nature of the contract was disputed. And it was a question and answer format, and it was based on a principle called pacta sunt servata, which just means pacts have to be kept. And so if you had a contract between two people and you bring that to the court, automatically it's assumed that a pact is supposed to be kept, so they had a question-answer session to make sure everybody understood what was agreed to, and then a judgment could be reached. And there was consequential damage and there was direct damage awarded in, rela in relation to what the decision was. There was also a type of law called rea vindicatio, and this was a legal action by which the plaintiff demands that the defendant return something that belongs to the plaintiff. So, in other words, you have something that was borrowed and kept, or you have something that was supposed to be sold and taken, but no money exchanged. And so they could bring this type of lawsuit in, and, uh, and there would be uh, perhaps uh, a wrong party could claim condicatio fervia, which would mean there was damages to be paid to the plaintiff, and the whole thing would, would, uh, would wash out that way. Now, whenever there was a problem between two Roman citizens, uh, legis actionis, which is the first part of it, which would be this. You have a problem, so uh, the first, uh, when you have a problem, you go before a magistrate, which is a praetor, okay? Which would be someone who was either a commander of the army, would automatically uh, qualify, or someone who'd been elected to that position. And so you have a problem, and, uh, and there would be a summons by voice, and in other words, the plaintiff would request, uh, as he goes to the magistrate, uh, that the defendant come to court, and they would call that, in our terms, a preliminary hearing where the statements from each party would be uh, aired out and everybody would know what the problem was. If he failed to appear, the plaintiff could call uh, reasons to have him dragged into court. Now, if the defendant couldn't come or, couldn't, or could not be brought to court, he would be regarded as, as indefensus, and the plaintiff could, with the authorization of the praetor, seize his property. Now, you can kind of see right away, even in these kind of examples, that uh, that's some of the stuff that Paul's talking about. All right, you're dragging people into court, you're defrauding them of way more than, you, than is owed to you. And, uh, and we know that from Roman, uh, Roman law that the defendant may elect a representative to appear in his place, uh, to seek uh, a promise to appear on a certain day, uh, and uh, face a financial penalty if he didn't appear. So, under the magistrate, all the preliminaries were arranged. Then the second part, which is where the issues were actually decided, was held before a judge. Now, the judge wasn't a magistrate, he wasn't a private lawyer, he was an individual agreed upon by both parties from an official list of judges that they could look at. And if the two parties couldn't agree on a judge from the list, then the magistrate would just appoint a judge to them who would decide their case. And then the full trial would occur before the judge, with each side taking turns speaking, with the weight of the burden being placed on the plaintiff. Now, the next term related to the Roman law was condemnatio. This is the part of the trial that gave the judge authority to condemn the defendant to a certain sum or to absolve him. And these civil suits that Paul's talking about, uh, victorious parties had to enforce the verdict of the court themselves. They were entitled to seize the debtor, put him in prison until he repaid the debt. Uh, and of course, in Paul's language, you can see he condemns uh, picking a judge that is an unbeliever. He condemns dragging people into court, uh, demanding that damages be paid, and using their ability to receive damages to rob and defraud each other. And so you can see that here's these Corinthians. They're coming out of this litigious society, which everybody knows how it works, and they're using this inside the church. They're dragging people in. If they won't show up, okay, well, there's just going to be damages paid. You can be seized. And so instead of using the right that the church had to determine their own issues, some in Corinth were using the court system and hanging out all this disagreement between church people on a clothesline of embarrassment in front of the entire world. Now, the church never claimed to be perfect, but it sure looks bad uh, when it's doing this kind of thing. All right? Now, Paul says, I say this to your shame. You're doing this, and it's a shame to you. Now, he's dealt with sources of conflict before, which is why I think he was so surprised that, um, <coughs> that they were doing what they were doing. Ephesians 4.25, here's some sources of conflict, of course, that could be solved, right? Uh, he says this, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to each, uh, each one of you with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. 
So Paul says, listen, this can be a source of conflict. Somebody lies about something, and somebody believes it, and it doesn't end up being true, and now there's a big conflict between people. Paul says, listen, this can be solved by just telling the truth to each other. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer. So you agreed to pay for something, and you took it, and you didn't pay for it, or whatever it is. You borrowed it and didn't return it. Once again, those types of lawsuits we see in Roman law. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so they don't have something to share with one who has need. You can solve some of these issues, Paul says, by just telling the truth to each other. You can solve some of these issues by not stealing from one another, but labor, so make sure you have what you need. And again, I think the Holy Spirit carries James along to address a grievance that could lead to conflict and lawsuits in James 5.4. He says this, as he condemns those who do this, he says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. And once again, James takes this whole issue that creates problem, right? And says, listen, you didn't pay what you were supposed to pay. People did work for you. You're holding them back. The Lord hears this. He's not pleased with any of this. But once again, see, these issues are taken to task by the Lord here in the New Testament. And all through the Old Testament, we see those things, right? Even the Ten Commandments address the stealing, doesn't it? And coveting and all the things that go on uh, inside interpersonal relationships. Those things that lead to lawsuits. Paul deals with, the Old Testament deals with, the church was able to deal with these things internally. Roman law allowed them to. The Jews were able to deal with these things internally. And so... These are areas of contention, along with many others that the Scripture deals with. And so they have the ability and the resources to deal with civil issues that come up. So in the middle of this rebuke, then, Paul will remind them of how to handle these issues, and we're going to look at all of those different things. Now, that little bit of historical context, we have this Corinthian church that's used to doing this kind of thing as a process of life. Uh, they become believers, uh, they enter the church, and just like they did with their worldly problem-solving that we saw earlier in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and just like they did with their immoralities that we saw in chapter 5, they brought this litigious way of life and problem-solving into the church as well. And, and remembering that Paul said in the previous problem, remember in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, he says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? As he talks about immorality, it's just like any other sin in the church. Paul uses uh, this whole thing and understands this is, and this is a sin issue, and Paul knows then he has to deal with it in the church in order to bring them to health. Now, Paul wades right in and gives them the main principle that he wants them to understand. And here it is. Read chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 1 with me. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Now, Paul uses the verb tomao, which is the word dare, present active indicative. So here's what you can understand about that. You're daring to, or you're doing this thing, and it's a sin. And that's the main principle Paul wants to get across, taking another believer to court to sin. And that's pretty straightforward. And I guess we could stop right there if we wanted to, because that's exactly what Paul wants to say, and that by itself stands. But we've got a lot of time, and I, I want to say a few other things, so we'll, we'll go ahead and get into some other verses. But the bottom line is, there it is. Paul says, listen, are you daring? This is exactly what you're doing. Why would you even think about doing this? Now, obviously, this is what they've been doing, so Paul's going to give them some reasons why they shouldn't have been doing it, and he's going to give them reasons that they've forgotten, because no doubt, Paul had taught them these things while he was there, maybe not in direct relation to suing each other, but it could be that Paul hadn't expected them to sue each other in light of the knowledge that they had, and we talked about before that they're forgetful hearers, as we saw earlier in chapter 3, he says, listen, you're forgetful here. I gave you meat, and now I'm coming back, and you still need milk. And this is the issue here as well. They should have known these issues. They certainly had the right to solve the issues inside the church, and yet they weren't doing it. And so Paul brings this to them. He's surprised, perhaps, that they are doing it. He hadn't expected them to do it. So he's going to pull the principles together that will help them understand the sinfulness of what they've been doing. Now, to clarify, let's look at this next phrase. So does any one of you, and here it is, when he has a case against his neighbor. Now, just to clarify that, Paul's not talking about your next door neighbor or someone else down the block, okay? The word is translated 142 other places as another or other. And so we're gonna go with that, okay? And the context obviously means another believer. That's what he's talking about. That's the context of the statement. So Paul's saying when he has a case against another or his, it can certainly be translated neighbor, but it's speaking of believers in the context. And then look at the next one. It says, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. 
That's the issue Paul starts with. And so uh, that isn't initially that there's a matter of law between two believers. That certainly could happen. There certainly could be a disagreement between two business owners who are both believers inside the church. There could be a difference of agreement between what was agreed upon between two believers. Certainly there could be conflict inside the church. Uh, That certainly could be the issue. So the issue is initially that's a matter of law between two believers, although he's going to deal with that later, and he's getting some other options besides taking them to law, okay, or taking them even inside the church uh, to those inside the church who could judge. Because uh, bringing a case against a brother and sister of Christ is the last thing he thinks you should be doing. He's going to give some other things they could do. But right now he's dealing with taking your issue with another believer to a secular court. That's his point. And Paul says, I can't believe this is going on. And with that wording, I think it's safe to say that Paul was taken by surprise. Paul's taken aback. And the reason he's taken aback was because he's Jewish and the Jews very rarely did this. And he's taken aback because he was a Christian, and the Christian community is supposed to be about love and forgiveness. Believers giving it out in the same way that they received it from the Lord. But instead of loving each other and forgiving each other, they're stealing from each other and being unforgiving. And, that, and, and that's not only to get what they might have deserved, in other words, what would be a fair settlement, but more than they deserved. And then this next phrase, it says, before the unrighteous and not before the saints. And that's what really uh, grieves Paul the most. And it's just speaking of those participants and the process we just spoke about earlier, the magistrate or the praetor and, of course, the judge. You're taking them before these two people, and these people have never come to Christ. They're unsaved, and they don't know the Lord. So Paul says, listen, are you seriously doing this? Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? And Paul just, you can just kind of see him throwing up his hands. I mean, if it's not one thing, it's another. He's like, for crying out loud. So the point Paul seems to be making here is, why would you take these cases before unsaved people and not before the saints? I mean, the saints are the ones, you can just hear Paul's self-talk, the saints are the ones who know the word of God, and therefore they know God's principles. The saints are the ones who have the Holy Spirit, and they can allow the Spirit of God to lead in the decision. Now, they should know this. These principles are obvious in the word, so Paul's going to remind them of why, in doing what they were doing, he's rebuking them for being in open sin. And as he does that, he gives us some very valuable insight, listen, on the significance and the equipping of true believers. And that's just the great uh, light that shines in the middle of this very dark passage. Look at verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So Paul asks a rhetorical question, an answer that they should know. Now, aren't you currently aware of this obvious point, Paul says? And the answer is, obviously not. But you should be, because you're a forgetful hearer. Same problem we told them they had in chapter 3. Don't you know the saints are going to judge the world? You should know this, but you don't know this because of your actions. You prove that you don't. So reason number one, the saints will judge the world. That's the first reason uh, in rebuking why they uh, should not be taking their cases to a secular court. The saints will judge the world. Pretty amazing to think about, but true. And Paul says, how could you not know this? Uh, apart from this very clear statement from Paul. Now listen, if we didn't have any other thing in the scriptures that talked about this, that would be enough, right? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? By that only, we would understand that at some point in the future, saints will have a position of judging. But that certainly is not the only place that Paul says this, and it's not the only place that we find it in the scriptures. One of the things we're going to see through the scriptures is the fact that the saints will rule with Christ. Uh, Someday, perhaps very soon, Christ will come, catch away the church, and that'll start the tribulation time, or Daniel's 70th week. And at the close of the seven-year period, Christ will return with all the saints. And in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21 through 22, tells us that, He who overcomes, I'll grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has a ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, I'll grant him to sit down with me on my throne. So there is right away an understanding that those who persevere, that's those true believers who are with Christ, will sit down with him on his throne. Paul encouraged his spiritual son Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, in verses 10 through 13. I'll just read just part of it. In verse 10 he says, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Now mark this part, verse 11. It's a trustworthy statement, Jim just read it, for if we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, 
we'll also, what's the next part? Reign with him. If we deny him, he'll also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So, just kind of a simple comment to Timothy, which gives us, once again, a very firm foundation to stand on. It's a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. And so, if we're born again, certainly we'll live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. So, part of the duties of reigning with Christ will be a responsibility to judge. And we look back in our study of the book of Revelation with this responsibility to judge is going to be particularly important during the millennial reign of Christ. As you remember, those who come in, uh, there's going to be uh, uh, millions and uh, billions, get into the billions in the thousand-year reign, and the world will be working right as it was supposed to work from the beginning, and there's going to be positions there that Christ will assign. Now, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, and we looked at all that before, so I won't go back that, through that with you again, but in Matthew 28, or 19, verse 28, uh, as Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he says, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So particularly to his disciples, he says, you are for sure going to be judging, and you're going to be judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then again, speaking to the church through John, uh, Christ says in Revelation 2.26, he says this, He who overcomes... And he who keeps my deeds until the end, and once again, just speaking of true believers, this is what happens with true believers. They overcome, they keep the deeds, they, they, um, uh, they endure. All those things just speak of those who are true believers. So he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. To him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. So a direct authority, a specific authority, a very important authority, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. So there's going to be some judgment handed out. It's not going to always be pleasant. The saints are going to be handed some of this judgment. As we said it in Daniel chapter 7, verse 21, and once again, beloved, I'm just kind of skimming over and just catching the cream. There's so much more we could talk about, but it would take up our whole time. But I just want you to be sure about all this, because Paul says, listen, don't you know this? This is obvious? You're going to judge the world? You can't even judge the smallest matters in the church. And so I just wanted to see that you to see. This is just, uh, the scripture is just chock full of this understanding, which is why Paul indicts them so severely. Don't you know this? And so in Daniel chapter 7, verse 21, we read, I kept looking, and the horn was waging war with the saints. And we, we understand who that is, that, that horn is the Antichrist. He's waging war against the saints, overpowering them. Verse 22, and the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the, holy, holy, of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. And so there's this handing over of the authority that the Antichrist had temporarily to the saints, the authority over the kingdom. And so, and then skipping down to verses 26 and 27, same uh, chapter in Daniel, and then it says, But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, destroyed forever. Speaking of the Antichrist, so it's a temporary dominion. Verse 27, then the sovereignty and dominion and greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. That sounds like a pretty big title. And I think there's going to be some parsing that out amongst the believers, and it will relate to faithfulness. We'll see that in just a minute. The fact of the matter is that when the Antichrist's authority is taken away at the close of the seven-year tribulation, there's going to be a passing over of some judgment positions to saints. That just seems to be the indication all through the scriptures, and I've given you a sample in a bunch of different places, and there's so many more, okay? But just understand that Paul says, this is obvious, beloved. He says to uh, the church at Corinth, don't you know this? This is just basic to your understanding of who you are. So I think it's obvious you're going to rule. It's not a marginal issue. And sometimes the word rule is used, and sometimes the word judge is used, but it just means to have oversight. It means to have authority. Uh, someday we're going to rule with Christ, making decisions as a responsibility to him and as a reward from him. And that seems to be the point of Matthew and Luke after Jesus' parables of the talents. In Matthew 25, 21, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And I think that's the whole idea. As you read the whole passage, you understand that there was some uh, small things that they had to be faithful with, and the Lord has in mind, if you're faithful in these small things, I'm going to pass on to you some very big things, and I think we can back into what we just read and understand some of those issues. And then in Luke 19, verse 17, we get the same idea from a different perspective. 
Uh, and he said to them, well done, good slaves, because you've been faithful in a very little thing. I give, uh, you are to be in authority over 10 cities. So even in that issue, uh, there's some judging that's going to go on. There's some ruling that have to go on. If you understand the whole landscape of the thousand-year reign of Christ, where he rules in Jerusalem, and where all the world is going to be coming and paying homage to him and bringing sacrifices and all the stuff that's supposed to happen, uh, you understand that there's going to be everything set back up and infrastructure that's there. And, of course, with all that, government is going to be some requirements for those who are saints to be involved. So I think it's just obvious, not a marginal issue. You're going to rule. Paul says it is obvious. Don't you know this, he says to the church. Uh, you're having all these squabbles between you. You're going to be judging the world. Can't you handle just a little bit? And that's the whole issue. So the type of responsibility to be given to believers will be as a result of faithfulness on earth. That's the whole point of those comments in Matthew 25 and Luke 19. So Paul says, come on, people. Are you kidding me? I mean, you're going to rule. And the ensuing conclusion is in Paul's next statement. If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? And so he says, in other words, the greater begs the lesser. Just realize who you are. If you, if you can handle the court of Christ and ruling with him, it seems fairly apparent, Paul says, that you should be able to handle local matters of the family. That's the whole point here. That's because of the nature of the church being fitted to rule the world. It should also be fit to judge its own private matters. But instead of doing that in Corinth, they were taking things to secular courts and just exposing their animosity and their hostility and their immaturity and their carnality and their arrogance and their self-importance and all those sins that were characteristic of them that we've looked at already. Now look at verse 3. We're going to see the second reason why the church should not be going to secular courts uh, to resolve its conflicts. Look at verse 3 with me. Do you not know that we'll judge angels? How much more the matters of this life? And so Paul says it with almost the same inflection. Don't you know this? You shouldn't be going to secular courts. You're going to be judging angels. And that statement is a very interesting statement. Christians will someday sit in judgment or rule over angels. And again, the statement can stand alone in its clarity just from Paul's comment right here. But it certainly isn't the only place that we see it. But if Paul just said, you're going to be judging angels, then we would know that that would be certainly the issue for the future of the saints. And now here it appears that there'd be two possibilities, and you're probably thinking this already if you're going ahead uh, with your thoughts. Number one, he's speaking of unholy angels. Number two, he's speaking of holy angels. And so that's the question. And I would say, turn, if you would, hold your, because we have enough time, hold your finger here. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Will you do that? Hebrews chapter 1, the writer is comparing the power and dominion of Christ to that of angels, as you get in the early part of Hebrews 1. And in Hebrews 1, verse 5 is where we're going to pick up as he really gets into some specifics of what actually has been said and what hasn't been said, and some authority and dominion that have been given and authority and dominion that have not been given to angels. So look there if you would. It's a great passage, and I think it'll really open up. Perhaps you've read it before and you're wondering, how does that relate? And I think for the first part, you can certainly relate it to what we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 6. He says this, look at, look at uh, verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? And which one is it? None. That's the whole point of the question. He didn't say that to any angels, okay? And again, I'll be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Which angel did he ever say that to? None. He didn't say it to anybody. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. So now he's talking about whom? Christ, that's right. Talking about Jesus, okay? Um, and then verse, and, and, and verse 7, he says, and, the angels he, and to the, of the angels, he says, who makes his angels, wins, and his ministers a flame of fire. Verse 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Verse 9, you have long, uh, loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. So, obviously setting Christ's dominion well above the angels, Christ's authority well above the angels, uh, he's the only one he said those comments to. And then look at verse 13. There's some other accompanying comments that we don't have to look at today. But look at verse 13, chapter 1. He makes this statement from which we understand some of the duty of angels. He says this, verse 13, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And what's the answer to that? None. Okay, so using the same question-answer format. He hasn't said that to any angels. Verse 14, and then he gives some of the, some of the requirements for angels, what angels do. He says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So they're serving whom, beloved? 
Us, that's right, you and me, okay? And all who've come before, who are believers, and all who will come after, uh, the Lord uses them to minister and to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So they're doing what the Lord tells them to do, so they're not up there with an angel meeting, uh, angel staff meeting saying, okay, I think we should do this and that, and okay, you go do this, and you know, the, the, uh, the manager says this. No, they, they take instruction from the Lord, and they minister to those who are inheriting salvation, okay? Then he moves on into the next chapter and brings in the relationship of men and angels, and this is where it, I think it really marks out what we're talking about. Look there, if you would, chapter 2, verse 5, and this is the illustration I want you to see. Chapter 2, verse 5, for he did not subject to angels the world to come. So once again, he's giving a limit of what angels are allowed to do. He didn't subject uh, to the angels the world to come. So the, the angels aren't getting the world, okay? And they're not in charge of the world, okay? Concerning which we are speaking, verse 6. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? Verse 7. You've made him, mark this, for a little while, lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. Verse 8, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting, now listen, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. So man is the topic, temporarily put a little bit lower than the angels, but all things under subjection under men, Okay. He left nothing that's not subject to him, but now, look at this last sentence, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. So, you know, somebody's reading the passage, they're thinking, hold on, everything's subject to men? That's not what I'm seeing in culture, that's not what I'm seeing in my own life, I don't seem to be in charge of all these things, and certainly not of angels, I don't seem to see that at this point, and so the writer says, listen, he's left nothing that's not subject to men, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to to him. So in other words, everything that God has created has been put under the subjection of man. However, because of the fall, not all things that are under man's subjection are visible yet. Okay? So when we see Paul say, do you not know that we will judge angels, we know that it still sits out there in the future. It's not here yet. But it's just as sure as if it were going on right now because God's already declared it. And the writer of Hebrews says, listen, everything that was created by God has been put under the subjection of men, although we don't see everything under the subjection right now. But Paul says, I'm talking about a time that's past that point where all things will be put under subjection of men. So when we see say, Paul say, do you not know that we're going to judge angels? We it's only a temporary place that men have put a little lower than the angels right now, because that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews says, for a little while lower. So, and what do angels do? They render service, as we saw, to those who are inheriting salvation, and that's you and me and all believers before and all who will come. So when Paul makes this declaration, God carried the writer of Hebrews along to give the foundation on which the statement stands from God's own mind. So you may say, well, you know, which angels will we judge, good or evil? Well, it appears that the argument could be made for both. There's no article there before angels, and so Paul certainly could have specified which one if he wanted to differentiate between the two. And the book of Hebrews indicates that all things are under man and will be under man, and certainly I think Hebrews is speaking of holy angels as they ministering spirits for those who are inheriting salvation. And so I think you can make that, certainly make that argument that holy angels will be brought under subjection of men, that men will rule angels. So for those reasons, we don't have to be dogmatic all things are under men and will be under man because of the fall. We don't see that all right now, but someday there will be this restoration. And he's saying it as doctrine to illustrate a point. And listen, in a qualitative sense, okay? So he just says you're going to judge angels. So it's a qualitative sense as an illustration. All angels, just like the previous statement, don't you know this? Obviously not, but you should, that this is who you are. Angels as beings will be placed under a believer's rule. You know, so if you're going to you know, do that, uh, are you kidding me about this thing, about taking each other to, to secular courts? If you're going to be judging angels? And just as a footnote, so that you can get it clear, we certainly will be judging even evil angels, according to 2 Peter 2.4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for? And who receives the ability to judge? And according to Paul, who will be judging angels? So you can put that all together, right? 
And then as well as in Jude 6, it says angels who did not keep their own domain, and we talked about that before, those who inhabited humans, inhabited other things, abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for judgment of the great day. So I think you can make the case that holy angels will be under the dominion of men. That's what Paul says is the case, and we can certainly see it in the Word of God as well. And you can certainly make the case that unholy angels will be under the dominion of men and be judged by men. Uh, saints, if you will, as at the close of the tribulation period. So as it relates to Paul's earlier statement, it appears that part of our judgment duties will include wicked men as well from Jude 14. And in Jude 14, we see this. It was also about these men that Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all of the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done, in an ungodly way, and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. As it relates to holy angels, Hebrews makes it clear that they will be put under the dominion of the redeemed, and certainly ungodly men judged, and, and believers somehow put in that dominion spot. Now, I said all this, and I'll just say this. As we read Paul's statement, which says, don't you know you're going to judge angels? I don't think anyone knows all the implications of Paul's statement and what that means, and how it will work out, and how the dynamic of all that will work in the thousand-year reign of Christ. I don't think you can grasp it. I don't think I can grasp it. I don't think all the, all the commentaries, they don't seem to grasp it. It's not, it's not inside of our own ability to understand. I don't think we can get all the implications of all that that means. It's overwhelming. Particularly as we look at our little squabbles, right? And you just think about the daily life inside the church and, and the misunderstandings and, and all the backbiting and the gossip that goes on. And you just think, we're going to be judging angels? I mean, you can see Paul saying, what are you arguing about? You're going to be judging angels. You're going to be judging men. The world will be put under your dominion. You're going to have some authority. Get it together. Right? And so this, the whole, I think the, the implications of Paul's statement are, are beyond us other than what we have here and in the illustrations that we looked at. We can just take those at face value. Paul's statement certainly stands on its own, and then I think supplemented by our passages in Hebrews, and certainly out of 2 Peter and as well as Jude, I think we have a pretty clear understanding then of what we can at least grasp. And so Paul's point again is an argument from the greater to the lesser, when then he says in chapter 3, how much more the matters of this life. So if you're going to judge angels, how much more can you judge the matters of this life? So Paul's point is this. Here it is, okay? If the church is being equipped by the Holy Spirit through the knowledge of the word and the wisdom to apply it, then we ought to be able to settle our own matters down here. That seems simple enough, doesn't it? And I think that's Paul's point. That's his point to the Corinthian church and every other church that's come along since. If you're being equipped by the Holy Spirit through the knowledge of the word of God and the wisdom to apply it, let the word dwell in you richly with all wisdom, then we ought to be able to settle our own matters down here. We're almost out of time, so I want to just look at one more verse, verse 4, and we're going to close for the day. And this is kind of a summary, so it's going to be a perfect place to stop. Look at verse 4, if you would, with your open Bible. So, if you have law of courts dealing with the matters of life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? And that becomes a very, I think, very harsh language. How many of you need to go back to that? You need to go back to that previous statement. You need to get that all copied down. That was kind of a long one. You're all right. Okay, good. Here's the thing. Look at verse 4 again with me. So if you have law courts dealing with the matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Once again, expressed as a rhetorical question. And of course, the answer is obviously to us, just not to the Corinthians. Okay? Of course you wouldn't. Of course you wouldn't. Okay? Of course you have courts dealing with the matters of this life. Do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Okay? In other words, that's just what you're doing, but of course you wouldn't do that. In other words, obviously there are secular law courts that deal with every part of life, and we just looked at an example of them in Roman law, okay? Contract law, personal law, civil suits, you stole from me, whatever, okay? You've got all these things set up inside the Roman law system. You can take your, your cases to them, okay? Obviously you have that. But listen, of no account is the word exotheneo who don't even compare to what you have in the church. Do you take these things, appoint judges who are, who are exothenao in the church? So let's back into it then. I think it's, and I, I wrote it up here, I think, the easiest way to understand. 
anyone in the church who's a believer is more qualified to render a judgment between two believers in conflict than any judge of a secular court. That's Paul's point. They're of no account in the church. They're not believers. They don't have the word of God. They don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. You have the word of God. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You can look at the scriptures and see what's supposed to be done. So anyone in the church who's a believer is more qualified to render a judgment between two believers in conflict than any judge of a secular court. That's Paul's point. And he gets really specific right there. Listen, they are of no account in the church, okay? The newest believer, the one least familiar with the Word of God, is more qualified because of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom that comes from him than any judge you could appoint outside. And if you're going to judge the world, and if you're going to judge angels, can't you at least constitute the smallest of courts? And that's Paul's comparison to what your future responsibilities will be in comparison to what the issues may be now. And he's not discounting that there are issues. He's not discounting that perhaps there are disagreements, that there, are, there has been fraud committed, somebody's lied to somebody, whatever it is. He's not discounting any of that. There are conflicts in the church, obviously. So Paul starts first with saying, but the secular courts are off limits for you for the qualifications that I just mentioned, he said. And the fact that the simplest, newest believer is more qualified to make that judgment between you two because it's so small in comparison than any judge, any magistrate, praetor outside the church. Okay? So according to Paul, believer, you know, believer inside the framework of the church with an understanding of the Word of God, with the indwelling Holy Spirit, is better equipped to handle a matter between brothers and sisters in Christ than the most competent secular judge. You can take care of this, Paul says. And on top of that, as we'll see in verse 5, it's much better for the corporate testimony of the church. He goes, I say this to your shame, that you're even doing this. You know, Paul says, if you're going to judge the world and you're going to judge angels, I think your rank is above any of those who are on the outside. Because in Christ, you're better equipped than the world to handle these issues. In Christ, you're better equipped than the angels to handle these issues. Because you're going to reign with them and you have a high position and are esteemed by the Lord. And so that's a marvelous thing that he says to you. Do you understand your position? Do you understand how the Lord looks at you because you're redeemed? I mean, think about Ephesians 2.4. This is something my father-in-law sends to me often, just to remind you of where you are and where I am. But I love this passage. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespass, tra transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. Verse 6, and raised us up with him, marked us, beloved, marked us, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's your position. You have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You have been seated there. That's your actual position. Now, that not, might not be your perception of your reality at this point, okay? And perhaps the way you squabbled with your wife or your kids on your way to church just made you think, hey, that's not where I am, right? Or how you dealt with your business life or how you dealt in a personal matter. You may have just been very immature, but understand something. Scripture looks at you as a completed project, okay? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And as you're addressed in your position in Christ, you understand that you have this ability. And Paul says to this Corinthian church, even in all the wickedness that was going on there, the immorality we looked at in verse 5, and the pride and all the arrogance in the factions and disunity that were in chapter 2 versus, uh, through chapter 4, even in all of that, he said, as a believer, and even a believer that still needs milk, he said, you've been a for, uh, forgetful hearer, you have a marvelous position and you're equipped with marvelous things. And Paul says, this is a terrible testimony to this church in Corinth. You're doing what you used to do as a secular person and taking your church issues between believers to people unqualified to render an argument who may very well give you a great settlement and you'll enrich yourself. And that Paul says, I say this to your shame. Not only are you seeking to be compensated, you want to be overcompensated. And isn't that the curse of our society today? You go to McDonald's and spill a hot cup of coffee in your lap and you sue them for $10 million dollars. If you don't know that a cup of hot coffee is hot from McDonald's, you need to give your driver's license up and stay home and take yourself out of the gene pool, okay? Listen, that's ridiculous, but that's where we are, and even believers buy into this. Oh, so I had a fender bender and my neck hurts, so I deserve $100 million. Listen, beloved, this is exactly what we're talking about here. Now, we're talking about between two believers, okay? 
But Paul brings that in too. He says, you defraud and cheat one another and also with the brethren. So he's, he's talking about as a believer, you're going out and trying to settle this huge settlement to reward yourself and pad your bank account from now on. You don't have to do a work, any more work in your life. He says, that's a sin too. But the greater sin is that you're doing it between each other and hanging all that out on the line and letting the world look at it. It's a terrible testimony. So that's Paul's instruction to them. That's how he gets into it. He's going to give them some other ways to go about it, okay? And they don't have to follow up uh, this way. 2 Timothy 2.15. If, if this is your position, okay, you know, if, if you have this high position in Christ, then, you know, I just say this to you. If this is what we're supposed to do, 2 Timothy 2.15, Jim just read it. It's not just for Awana people, okay? It's for everybody. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handing the word of, word of truth. If you're, if you're going to, if you're going to, I'm sorry, let's go on. If you're going to do these things, if you're going to be able to settle these matters, then you're going to be able to handle the word correctly, okay? And so this is a, it's a super important dynamic that plays into all of this, all right? Is there not someone, Paul's going to say, in your church who can't handle, who can handle these matters? And the answer, of course, is rhetorical, yes, there is. Yes, there is. There are people who can manage it. So if you're going to reign over the world and you're going to reign over angels, you should be able to handle your own cases, which are much less complex than the ones you're going to be handling. Okay, so Paul says in these issues, if it has to be, if you have to have judgment, any growing believer in the church will handle it better than someone in the world. So keep it out of those courts. That's Paul's point, okay? And he's going to give them some, as we talked about just a minute ago, some options, other options besides going to court. He's going to get right down to the sinful issues at work here. We're going to see that next time, Lord willing. All right, let's close in a word of prayer, if you would, bow with me as we seek the Lord and seek, of course, this Holy Spirit to bring to bear the things that we need to take away with us. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for the time of worship we spent uh, a few moments ago. We thank you for the psalms that lifted us up and, and had us uh, get, catch a glimpse of your glory and the truth that's in your word. Uh, Father, we thank you for a time that we could pray and seek you and submit ourselves to you. Uh, a time where we could give of what we have, showing where our heart really is. All those things so important as we uh, do the things saints have been doing for 2,000 years. And Father, as we come to this passage, it seems so relevant to us as all the other ones are for our modern society, where we all want to have something, where we all desire to have more than our due, where we all want to be compensated and, and we want to get our due. And, and, uh, and Lord, all these things inside the church are a bad testimony for the grace that's supposed to be there. So Father, I pray that you'll do your work amongst us. I don't know the, all the situations, the many very people who are here, but you certainly do. And you know what we need to hear, you know what we need to do. So as we go verse by verse, we, as we always do, ask your Holy Spirit to just apply them liberally to us. And perhaps it, it's uh, a curative issue today. Perhaps it's preventative. Uh, either way, Father, we know that your Holy Spirit is at work and that uh, your word is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction and instruction in righteousness that we could be thoroughly furnished for every good work. So we thank you for that. We thank you for the time of fellowship today. We thank you for tonight at 6.30 as John brings the word to us out of Joshua. We pray that you'll encourage him and as we hear what is going on in, in the mission, as John has applied that to the believer, that we'll be encouraged and strengthened and reproved as you see, as you see fit. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus, for his sake, and all God's people said, Amen.